0: My Moment of Liberation April 24, 1945, Konzentrationslager Dachau, Lager 1, near Kaufering. The war was coming to an end. The Allies were flying over our area with no resistance from the German Air Force. The work on our construction site stopped. We were told that our camp was being closed and all able prisoners would be marched out to a new destination. My father was still in the hospital barrack with swollen legs and in his weakened state, he would not have survived one day of a march. I told him to stay with me and the other sick prisoners in the hospital. There was a risk that tying our fate to the sick prisoners would lead to certain deaths. But for my father, there was no choice, and I decided to stay with him. After the marchers left the camp, it was announced that all hospital inmates would go by train. My father and I, together with the sick prisoners, were led out of the camp. After walking in a heavy rain for two hours, we saw a freight train waiting for us. We were a mass of emaciated men, standing in almost total darkness, awaiting our unknown fate. With difficulty, we climbed into the freight wagons. I urged my father to lie down flat, not to sit, but I would not give him my reason for this instruction. I hadn't told him of the task I had been given the previous day. Of all the misery I had witnessed in the past nine months in Kaufering, that last day was the most horrifying. A group of us had been taken outside the camp to unload a train, but this time it was not bags of cement to unload. It was dead and dying prisoners. A train full of prisoners from a nearby camp had been shot at by an Allied fighter plane. The guards had run into the nearby forest during the attack, but the rail cars with the prisoners inside had been locked. When we arrived at the train and the guards opened the doors, a shocking sight greeted us. The prisoners inside were horribly wounded, with blood all over them, or they were already dead. We saw arms and legs covered in blood and lying in unnatural angles. It was our task to lift these people out of the railcars and lay them out on the grass. The living were crying and begging for water. We had no water to give them. We piled the lucky dead on the side and left the wounded prisoners on the grass to bleed to death, abandoned in agony and alone. I was totally shaken by this experience. Carrying dead people was one thing, but these prisoners crying with pain. I was totally shaken. I did not tell my father what I had seen, since I did not want to upset him too. Now we were in a locked freight car, and I could imagine quite vividly another attack from the air. I had seen the large bullet holes a few inches apart that had torn through the lower third of the rail cars, and I knew what damage those bullets could do. I wanted my father to lie flat to avoid the bullets. When I mentioned the possibility of an air attack, he began to talk to me soothingly, like I was losing touch with reality. We traveled undisturbed, and our train arrived at the large marshalling yard at the main camp of Dachau. We were now at the first concentration camp established under Hitler in Germany in 1933. The doors opened with a screech, and the SS armed guards were screaming, RAUS! Get out! We were stiff from sitting in wet clothes in the cold wagon and could hardly stretch our legs, but to avoid a whack on the back with a rifle butt, we fell from the high railcars to the ground and ran in the direction indicated. The railcar stunk with that distinctive smell of rotting bodies. Many trains had arrived from different concentration camps and some had been attacked by the Allied fighter planes. The dead and dying prisoners had not been removed from the trains for several days, we were told later. Our first stop in the main camp was a shower house. We had our first shower in nine months. Lukewarm water and some carbolic-smelling liquid soap helped us wash off the dirt and the lice that had tormented us. The Germans were afraid of an outbreak of epidemics in the camp. All our clothes were taken from us, and we were issued another set of striped jacket and pants with no regard to size. Then we were driven at a trot into one of the barracks. Thirty-two large barracks had initially been designed to hold 6,000 prisoners in total. Now each barrack held close to a thousand prisoners in each. When we arrived at our designated barracks, the four levels of wooden bunks were already greatly overloaded. My father grabbed a spot in the lower bunk when a dead body was removed. He lay down there, amid the weak and the dying, I lay down on the floor next to him. In the morning, Prisoners brought in a large drum full of hot tea. We lined up to receive our portion. My only possessions were an aluminum bowl and a spoon. If I lost them, I would likely die. I kept the bowl strapped to my clothing, the spoon hanging on a string tied to a buttonhole. I knew my father was going to die very soon. I recognized all the signs swollen legs, glazed, unfocused gray eyes, a shuffling gait, a very soft voice. My father was ready to die. He had already given up. For so long we had clung to each other, helped each other, and now I was losing my father. I knew that soon either the Germans would kill us all, like the last commandant had promised us, Or the American army would arrive and free us. But my father would not make it. I feared I would find him dead in the morning. And I thought of my mother, whose fate was unknown to me. A deep sadness overcame me. I remember thinking, please don't go. But my father was still with me the next morning, talking weakly to me. April 29. 1945. That morning, my father did not get up at all. At noon, when the daily food ration arrived, I urged him to come and line up for the soup and bread, but he could not get up. He asked me to take his bowl and collect his ration for him. I stood in line and explained that the second bowl was for my father lying in the bunk. The orderly poured another portion of soup and gave me another slice of bread, our whole daily ration. I walked back to my father, and he eagerly took the bowl of soup from me. Suddenly, there arose a great noise in the barracks. People were shouting, the Americans are here, we are free. Through the window, I saw a jeep with a five-pointed star. I said, Father, we are free, the Americans have arrived. He looked at me with some incomprehension on his face, and he said, That's good. Do you have the bread? That was my moment of liberation. Do you have the bread? (laughs) I still feared that my father would die, even though we were liberated. But an hour later, he climbed out from the bunk, stood in front of me, and he asked, So now what? He was 54, and he had survived. I saw a change in him and knew that now he would live. I believe that hope gave him strength when he most needed it. Liberation for me was tied to my father living, but life after liberation really did feel like, so now what? After about four and a half years, the war was finally over for us. I had just turned 17. I weighed 70 pounds, and I owned a soup bowl and a spoon." Both survivors and American liberators have described the aftermath of the liberation of Dachau as horrific. The Americans were appalled by what they saw. They emptied their own supplies and gave us what they had. Then they opened the storehouses and began distributing whatever food they found there. They gave me and my father a two-pound tin of processed bully beef. I didn't have tools to open the tin, but I was able to hack an opening with the edge of a knife. My father and I collected little pieces of paper, and we managed to make a fire. In our little metal can, we boiled the meat with some water. We watched each other to ensure we were not eating too much. We just drank the soup. We hadn't had any real food for close to a year, and we knew we couldn't digest the meat. All the survivors were so hungry, and many couldn't control themselves around the new food. They ate too much and died. We saw the Americans taking out huge wagons filled with dead bodies. American guards were at the gates and didn't let us out. Slowly, they emptied the overcrowded barracks. Within a few days, my father and I were taken outside the main camp to a barracks that the guards must have used, as they were clean and had only two levels of bunks. Some doctors came to examine us. Then the questions arose. What were we going to do? Where were we going to go? We decided that we would not go to Lithuania or to the Soviet Union. Suddenly, this became an issue. The Soviets were the first to come and offer to take their citizens back to their homeland by airplane. They went door to door, calling out names of all the Russian republics. We did not answer their call, which was a good decision. The first few were taken by plane, then the rest by train. We later learned that as soon as they crossed into Soviet territory, they were accused of being traitors and collaborators with the Nazis, and they again became prisoners and were treated abominably. We stayed in the barracks in Dachau for several more weeks. At first we stayed in bed sleeping for long hours. Then we started to feel a little better, but we were far from well. It felt like our lives were in limbo. In May 1945, my paternal uncle, Samuel Gotz, who lived in southern Rhodesia, Africa, received a telegram from Herzemisulavin of Johannesburg, a relative of the Gotz family. It was a first notice to our relatives that we survived the war. I try to imagine the moment when my uncle Samuel received this telegram from Herzeg Lavin, saying that his brother Yudel had survived Dachau. The last letters from us in Kaunas, Lithuania must have reached Samuel around June 1941 at the latest. After July 1941, no letters from us left Lithuania. Germany had already occupied our country, and there was war. After about a week, my uncle, Tanchum and Gedalia, who survived the death march and were liberated outside Dachau, turned up looking for us. They said we had to get out of the camp and go to a hospital. My other uncle, David, was with us. They organized the transportation, and a truck drove us all to Santa near the village of Geltendorf in Bavaria. Santa was a monastery that, during the war, ran a military hospital. The American administration had discharged the German patients, and the hospital took us in, together with a lot of other Jewish displaced persons. Who had been liberated in the area. The Santotilian hospital was staffed by nuns. Three Jewish doctors, survivors, were already working there, together with some German doctors and nurses. It was a proper hospital that began to deal with all our ailments. We were given lots of vitamins. One nun would come in every day and sing, Vitaminen, Vitaminen. We called her the Vitaminen Nun. The nuns were very kind. At first, they were afraid of us, only doing their duty. Later, they realized that we didn't regard them as the enemy. They softened up. They tried to keep some order. My father was still very weak. To help him smoke his cigarettes, I would go over to a patient who had a lighter and light up for him. A puff here, a puff there. I began to smoke too. I thought I might have tuberculosis, TB, since I had a lung infection when I was a child, and I asked for x-rays. The doctors told me there was a calcified area in my lungs, but no TB. Anyway, I made myself give up smoking. At liberation, as I mentioned, I weighed 70 pounds. Now I was gaining five pounds a week. I was eating and not moving much. I began to fatten up and I developed a big stomach. I still felt so weak that going up even one flight of stairs required a huge effort. I spent my time in a large room with dozens of beds, just sleeping and chatting with the men and boys in the room. A huge crucifix with a very pained-looking Christ hung at the end of the room. We slept in its shadow. All discussions revolved around a few subjects. How we all hated the Germans and the other nations amongst whom we lived for thousands of years and who often betrayed us in our hour of need. How the American Jews would surely try to help us to get out of Germany and start new lives. Our families, whose fates were unknown to us or worse, known already. How to find cigarettes and listening to each other the many miracles that had pulled us from death's door. People were discussing what they were going to do after they got out of the hospital and were sure that after what we had endured, the world would look after us, that we would be invited to come to America, France, or other countries. Of course, this turned out to be pure imagination. Then there was talk of revenge. We were so weak that getting out of bed was an effort, but many people were nonetheless dreaming of revenge. Some of the hospital's wings were full of women, all survivors. Slowly we began to meet with them, always searching for information about loved ones. Where are you from and which camp were you in was always the first question. To find out if they knew anyone from your town, perhaps someone from your family. Ten days after liberation, my father found a small piece of paper somewhere, asked for a pencil, and wrote his first letter to his brother and his uncle in Africa. May 9, 1945. Dear brother Samuel and wife, dear uncle Isaac, we can report to you that we, that is my son, Elinka, that's a diminutive for Eli, my brothers-in-law, Gedalia, David, and Tanhum, and I are alive, and we are together here. We belong to the 10% of Jews that remained alive from Hitler's onslaught. But sadly, sadly, my dears, we still do not know where our dear beloved Sonia is now, and whether she is still alive. After being deported from Kovno, the women were separated from the men at a certain station, and we are still unable to find out where they are. Elinka and I have both had spotted typhus and difficult illnesses, and I have joint rheumatism as well as therefore I find it difficult to write. Generally, we are, Elenka and I, still very weak after all these terrible travails. We need help. We do not know, however, where we will end up staying. Today we are leaving Dachau and are traveling somewhere. At the first opportunity, I will let you know where we will be. How are you? How is your wife? How are you doing in business? Eli had studied locksmithing in the ghetto, and despite his youthful age, he was just 15 and a half years old. He had shown so much capabilities that he became an instructor in the trade school for locksmithing, and was teaching 45 children the trade. We were asked where in the world we have friends and where we would like to go. Elinka and I said Africa or Palestine, but it is very possible that we will have to go back to Russia. Now the most important thing for us is to find Sonia. Wherever we end up in Germany with Elinka and the brothers-in-law, we will place ourselves in a hospital. We should get stronger, and then we will question what's next. We have things to tell that will last generations. Egypt was child's play compared with what we went through. Keep well, my dear ones, your Yudel.